0: Hello, and thank you for listening to Mapping the Zone, a podcast dedicated to informal discussion of the works and context of Thomas Pinchon. We are currently in the off season cycle between wrapping up Vineland and when we begin Bleeding Edge. But just like last time, in between Mason and Dixon and Vineland, we wanted to still have some content for you guys to listen to. Some of those episodes that we released did really well. Which, obviously, we we thank you guys for being willing to listen to the bonus material. is, is really awesome, much less to see the response to it that we did. So, we're just going to do that again. Um, this week, we are going to be starting off a little bit differently before, you know, each one of the hosts sort of has their own episode where they can talk about a piece of media they're interested in. And start off with some bonus material that we had kind of already lying around. Um, If anyone's curious to kind of peel back behind the curtain, the kind of off-topic conversation that runs at the end of each episode is just sort of captured after we're done recording, like, or before, or sometimes during breaks. It's just sort of extra snippets of conversation after we've hit record that we still think that maybe you guys might want to listen to or that may have... You know merit on their own, even if it's not discussing pinchon or one of the 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 pinchon related you know things that we've been talking about over the course of the episode. And um, this comes from one of those segments. I wish I could remember what episode of Vineland we had recorded before this happened, but essentially the after-show chat um, was sort of winding down and uh cody left and then luke left and it was just me and will but i had forgotten to turn the recorder off and so we were just sort of talking uh aimlessly for a while about ryan murphy uh who has a very weird producing career in hollywood and just sort of it started to go down a rabbit hole like you do on imdb where you look at this movie or that movie and you talk about this person or that person but then the conversation sort of started to Take shape into something else after that happened, and I was happy that I left the recorder running because I think the conversation that is about to follow this introduction is really, really great. Like it is, it is probably one of the best literature-related conversations I've had. Um, that being said, it, it does begin with a conversation more so about Hunter S. Thompson and about fear and loathing in Las Vegas. That's where that starts. There wasn't an easier way to kind of cut out the the stuff that wouldn't be that interesting to listen to with without you know sacrificing a, a a clean start time in the recording so that's where it really starts and then you know by the time about 20 minutes to a half hour is in it's it's really into the bulk of the conversation really the meat of the conversation so if you if you find yourself sort of annoyed by our takes in regards to the film adaptation of fear and loathing in las vegas then maybe skip to about 20 minutes in and and we'll be on to a different topic and on to the kind of topic that carries out through the rest of the conversation but it's sort of turned into a conversation about you know the current state of of publishing and the current state of postmodern or encyclopedic or you know books that have have this sort of additional scope or demand of the reader in in breaking down their content the kind of stuff that the people who read Pinchon often also like to read and sort of went on this kind of long circuitous route through different aspects of the current publishing industry in between, you know, the philosophies of different types of writing and and reading. And it honestly is one of the best conversations I've ever had with, with anyone in my life, like I already said, and certainly one of the best about this kind of topic and felt like it would be something that a lot of our listeners would be interested in listening to. So that's kind of the setup for what you're about to listen to. Um, I hope you love this conversation as much as I uh, mean Will enjoyed having it. And I uh, hope you love the first of these bonus episodes. We'll be back next week with another bonus episode uh, surrounding one of the host's particular uh, enjoyments or, or loves in, in books or music or movies. Without further ado. We'll see you next week. Thank you for listening as always. Here is Will and I.
1: So, okay. Have I shared my thoughts on Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas at all? No. So I'm not a big fan of the movie at all. Okay. I, I, I do understand why people like it, but I'm uh, not a fan. Uh, and the book I wasn't a fan of until I read, the, until I read On the Road, mm-hmm. which I, I read years later. And I just, it made me realize that Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas was responding to something. And it
2: just,
1: it just made me realize just how little on the road is relevant to anybody and how much uh, (laughs) everybody who's thinking of reading on the road today should just read fear and loathing in Las Vegas and assume that on the road has something going for it.
0: Yeah, that's, that's actually very fair. Um, My my writing mentor when I graduated high school, he bought me a copy of On the Road, and he was like, "I think you should read this before you make any decisions about your future," which is a very like melodramatic, you know, English professor thing to do.
3: Yeah.
0: Um. And I I I liked it. Like, it's an enjoyable read, but I don't think I would necessarily say that that should be taken as kind of like relatable content for anybody now. That's for sure. Um, and yeah, I I haven't necessarily considered Fear and Loathing as as a more relatable contextual road novel for the modern era, but I think you you may be correct about that one. Like
1: ser- seriously, and I I you know I came to On the Road in probably the least productive way possible, which is after having you know binged almost all of Thomas Pynchon's novels and after mm-hmm. having <clears throat> read Hunter S. Thompson and after having read don delilo and all these people who were very obviously influenced by kerouac mm-hmm. and you know being uh, you know raised in the early 21st century instead of the, the the you know the second stage of the 20th century um but really that book held absolutely nothing for me as a reader <laughs> i it was like <clears throat> i am the person who would write, like, a, a, a review of it saying a, a, a guy and his friends take drugs and take advantage of everyone around them.
3: <laughs> and it's,
1: like, especially reading it today, I feel like it was the thing that killed hobo culture.
3: Oh, yeah, it's like, completely.
1: Like, I can't believe that somebody as, like... because you know i make the jokes about y- y'all all of you being old um but you're not that old i can't imagine a fucking english professor recommending it for somebody your
0: age it it was interesting like a lot of a lot of my relationship with him as as my mentor was based around like i'm going to recommend you a book and you're going to tell me what you got out of it but i'm not going to tell you why I recommended it to you like that was a big basis of a lot of the mentorship outside of you know just like evaluating my writing skills because um you know obviously you need to be a good reader to be like a a solid writer and I remember at the time thinking to myself reading it through it I was like I don't I don't I don't know if I know what's going on here Neil like I I know or at least I think I know why you chose all the other ones that you did but I'm not entirely sure. I'm understanding what is going on here with this recommendation. I did go backpacking for a little bit after I finished it. Um, I went up to Canada, to took provincial park and I did just a big 400 mile circle with a canoe and a backpack, like portaging and stuff. But it did, it did not fill me with a sense that I needed to, you know, go out on the road, so to speak in the same way that I'm sure plenty of like, like white upper class people struggling with affluenza did after reading that thus killing hobo culture like I didn't yeah I it was it was very strange to me because that that was the only one I didn't really get like so I I've I've always wanted to ask him and I suppose I could in the next conversation we have go why did you I did you recommend (laughs) me on the road but I've never asked him about any other ones so I feel like, I feel like it would come across as a bit targeted. It sounds like it would be targeted. Yeah. (laughs) Well,
1: you know, I grew up with that kind of that urge to just travel for the sake of traveling and to just like to, to, to live in that very nomadic attachment free lifestyle. Like that was kind of the mindset I went into adulthood with
2: Mm -hmm.
1: and, um, I still, you know, think that a more nomadic lifestyle would be pretty great. But also, maybe I was just too old. But like Jesus Christ, Kerouac, is is are are these scenes of you, you know, getting home with a hundred bucks and buying a fridge, and feeling like, yep, I've done all I need to justify spending six months just laying around here. (laughs) <laughs> and it's just the they do horrible things it is not just like a matter of oh these people aren't being socially responsible or oh these these men are being misogynistic like they are absolutely horrible
2: mm-hmm.
1: yeah just, like i couldn't see past that uh, yeah
0: yeah dean is not a aspirational figure um or at least shouldn't be for for people but seems to have become one
3: Yeah, that's a that's a that's a weird book that
0: I feel like, and maybe maybe public perception of it has changed because I feel like I don't see it on a lot of curriculum anymore. But I can't imagine someone assigning
1: it these days as yeah. anything other than like a you know a survey of American literature,
0: or like specifically like the beat period. Yeah, but yeah, yeah I, it's it's an interesting one.
1: But yeah, all I got out of it was like a ton of respect for fear and loathing in Las Vegas. Up until then I had no respect for that as a novel <laughs> Like, I, and I, it, was, it wasn't like it was Oh this is so bad that it makes the other one look better It's just that I do right. think that it, I don't know how that book How Fear and Loathing actually makes sense Without On the Road
0: No yeah that's obviously a part of the basis for that I, So what didn't you like about the movie Because I actually don't totally care for the movie either
1: well, because the, the the heart of the book is the, the you know, long meandering theorizing about American culture and stuff, mm-hmm. and the movie just excises all of that in favor of, you know, oh my gosh, look at the people's faces widening into crocodiles.
0: Right. And just the, the crazy drug trippiness of it. Yeah, that, that's really all it is for me. Yeah. I feel like Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas is what the, like uninitiated to Hunter S. Thompson individual would think Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas is about. Like, if if they'd never read the book, if they didn't know anything about Hunter S. Thompson, but they had to guess, based upon public you know, popular opinion, that movie adaptation would be what they would probably guess it is. Um and maybe that's an unfair comparison given that we've had the movie existing for, you know, thirty years or whatever, forty years in American cinema, but like it i remember watching it because i hadn't i hadn't actually seen it until i did the double feature with my friend zach and i just the the entire time according so (laughs) according to my friends if i have had slightly too much to drink i start talking about james joyce for some reason um this is this is like the, the keynote to my friends, apparently, that I, I need to not be consuming alcohol anymore, as if James Joyce enters the conversation. That and appa- and apparently for a good chunk of the second half of Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, according to Zach, I was talking about James Joyce and how this is a very poor representation of an odyssey into American culture as opposed to what the novel is. Um So apparently those were the thoughts that I was having watching the film as well. I don't remember watching a good chunk of that movie because me and Zach deliberately got pretty loaded for it. Um, But it's, yeah, it's, it did not strike me as capturing the same thematic intent that the book did. It, It just seemed like Terry Gilliam was given a blank check to be weird for two and a half hours. And, cash that into its full monetary value
1: yeah i mean i so i read the book once in like high school and then i read it later and i was like 18 or something and then i watched the movie a couple of times after that and i just felt like there was nothing nothing in the movie except for the visuals mm-hmm. whereas in the book like i said i didn't understand it um, at all when i read it those first couple times but I did like feel like it was getting at something. I didn't, you know, it wasn't like I was reading and thinking, yeah, this is, this is so complicated. I don't understand what it's saying, but it sounds important. But you know, I was reading it and I was thinking, okay, this is actually saying things. I don't have any context for what they're saying, but these are things that somebody (laughs) is saying and, you know, clearly they care about them. And there's some thematic elements that run from the drug trips into the meandering social theorizing. Mm -hmm. Uh, and this movie has zero, zero of any of that, really.
0: Yeah, I feel like there's individual moments where you can see Terry Gilliam maybe a- attempting, but then he just, I feel like he gets in his own way. <laughs> maybe, because um, yeah. Because the, the halfway through, or no, maybe like the last third of Rum Diary, my partner at the time, who did not drink, showed up. Um, and so was the only sober person watching Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. And, you know, by this time, me and Zach had been drinking for hours. And so, like, they were the one pointing out the different aspects of the movie that seems to carry some additional weight. And I think they maybe only mentioned something three times. And most of it came in the second half of the movie after they go back to Vegas. Um, but, yeah, no, I know. Th- I feel like you've completely nailed what's wrong with that movie in in your description i don't think any and like i feel like anytime i've talked to somebody about that movie or like read an essay about it or watched you know like a video essay or something it does just seem to lean heavily into the visual storytelling and the you know the trippiness of the drug sequences and everything and how the film itself almost seems to carry the like feeling of being on drugs um even if you're not on drugs like that's the only thing that i ever hear talked about like i and the performances from benicio and johnny depp obviously but i i never hear them talk about the actual like point of the story or or the the
3: the supposed themes of it
1: yeah i mean like my introduction to the movie was through like people talking about it online as like oh this is the cool this is a cool drug movie Mm -hmm. and then excuse me and then in like college I went to a school where the the party scene was all psychedelics Mm -hmm. and so I got that kind of like stoner view on it and I remember thinking you know having read the book already I was like okay but but why you know people are t- if you're taking drugs and then watching a movie why would it be this movie that seems to entirely be an exercise in trying to convince sober people that like drugs are crazy
3: yeah yeah
0: yeah it's i don't i don't i've never seen the movie on psychedelics but i don't think i'd want to like it it does not seem to be Something that I would want to, like, I feel like that's just a way to induce a bad trip for yourself.
1: I'm trying to, I don't think I have seen it on psychedelics, unless you count.
0: <clears throat> yeah, okay, um, well, um, if, we're, if we're counting weed, then yes, I no, have. No, I, but yeah.
1: yeah. <laughs> I don't think I have. Um,
3: the, I, I think I would just be bored, honestly.
0: Yeah. But like, I could just go outside and stare at grass, and it'd be a lot more What's interesting that than that? this. And I'd have a lot better time with it. Listen to a good album. Yeah, that's what I do whenever I'm on psychedelics for the most part. Either that or I would write.
3: Uh, You don't watch Black
0: Mirror? No, I, I feel like that would, again, be another case where I, I would be in, inducing a bad trip for myself. <laughs> yeah, that one was a weird trend at my university. Using psychedelics and watching Black Mirror? Yes. Terrible, terrible idea. Um, like, you know, better than it could be most of the time. Yeah. Not a fan of like myself. Of Black
1: Mirror? Of, of that routine.
0: Oh, okay. Yeah.
1: <laughs> I like Black Mirror. It's a pretty good show. At least the first four or five seasons.
0: Yeah, the British stuff is all really good. I, I guess what I'm also thinking about is that, like, if I watched, like, Playtest specifically while on Psychedelics, that would be a bad time. Like i that especially with the way that episode ends, I think I'd have a bit of a
3: of a meltdown I'm trying
1: to remember which one that was
0: that's the one where um uh
3: okay the actor yeah. I can't
0: remember the actor's name Wyatt he Russell. Wyatt yeah. Russell, yeah, goes and tests out that virtual reality thing, and then it turns out that he was only in there for you know half a second or whatever.
4: Yeah, and the I mean, cell
3: phone transmission kills him.
4: Yeah, no. uh... That sounds awful. Yeah.
0: Yeah, and like the, the he stabs somebody at some point, and I think she like turns into a spider. Like, not a not a good time.
3: No, no, it
4: wouldn't be.
0: Or like watching White Christmas. Well, on uh, LSD would also probably be pretty rough. Yeah, yeah. Yep. What
1: that I is... Can... What, yeah. I can... what I can heartily not recommend is watching BoJack Horseman on LSD.
0: Oh my god, that would probably make me depressed for weeks.
1: It's a real fuck.
3: Yeah.
0: Yeah, I believe that. That's a great TV show, but...
1: It is, it really is, but it's already pretty uh effective it's pretty yeah it it inspires a lot of empathy you don't need that's for sure uh, chemical assistance
0: no and that that that's like i i was pretty late to that show like i watched bojack horseman like like a last two years ago i think it's like 2022 Uh, um and it still ended up being different than what i thought it was going to be based on like everything i'd heard about it Like, I was not anticipating... Like, I was anticipating it being depressing, right? Because that's what everyone says about it. But I was not Mm -hmm. anticipating it being as artistic in its rendering of the show itself. Like, that one episode that the entire thing is just him giving a eulogy. Um, And they they do different sort of conceptual episodes like that at least, like, once a season. So I wasn't prepared for, like, a lot of the artistry of it. Or... um, just how funny it was, too. Like, I figured that it would be funny sometimes as far as, like, you know, dark humor goes. But that, that show is, like, legitimately laugh-out-loud funny a lot. And they have a way of doing running gags in that series that's also, like, really funny and speaks well, to yeah. the artistry of the writers. Well, yeah, so the,
1: something that I hadn't ever considered before just now, um, the, the kinds of running gags are very much in that, like, Joyce and Pynchon Mm-hmm. Style
0: Yeah um, they definitely are
1: it, It's I mean I, I started Watching it when it came out um, And so to have The show evolve over time Was pretty cool to watch Because it really did Start out as just a sitcom
4: mm-hmm.
0: Yeah Raphael Bob Waxberg Just seems like a really interesting guy Like He because he also wrote a book of short stories called um, like someone who will love you in all your damaged glory, which seems to be very much a extension of some of the same thematic ideas that he was working with, with Bojack Horseman. Cause it's, a, it's just this anthology of short stories about like, you know, relationships or love or longing um, you know, things like that. I haven't read it, but I own a copy of it. Um, and just like, there's not like a lot of information about him, I feel like. So, how he, you know, developed these ideas and this, this like method of storytelling is very interesting to me. Um, he was also Adam Conover's roommate in fucking college. Like, uh, the, the two of wow. them are apparently really good friends, which was funny, which was wild for me to learn. Um, yeah, it just seems like a super interesting guy like i'd love to i don't know if he's done many interviews but i'd love to just like hear him talk about his creative process
4: oh he attended bard interesting i mean yeah i from
1: i've only seen bojack horseman but i would totally read that book based on the premise and author alone
0: yeah that was the only reason i bought it is like I think I was like in the second to last season of BoJack Horseman, and then I found out that he wrote that book, and I was like, "Well, I'm going to go get a copy of that like immediately because I would love to see if his storytelling translates to to prose." Um, and I imagine it does. It was pretty well reviewed.
1: Then he's been he co co created
4: Undone, a rotoscoped adult animated series. Oh, that's interesting.
3: And also for him to make that show in like his early 30s is also pretty wild to me. Like he's not that old.
1: But yeah, it indicates a lot of, you know, ironic for me to be the one saying it but it does indicate quite a lot of maturity and wisdom for his age.
4: Mhm.
1: <clears throat> so I'm not going to say that BoJack Horseman changed my life, but it, you know, it did, you know, expose me to some uh you know, d-
4: different ways of thinking that you just kind of don't run into in everyday life. Yeah, that's very true. Yeah,
3: he started the first season of BoJack Horseman premiered when he was 30. That's, yeah, that's very impressive.
0: No, I mean, I could, I could definitely see how, if you were to watch BoJack Horseman at the right point in your life, that it would have a very um, transformative effect on you.
1: Oh, and I, I'm not even saying that. I would, you know, I wouldn't put my nose up at anyone who did. But Yeah. No, it's just that, like, you know, I was... I, I could tell that it was it had a cert that the 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 writers uh, uh, presumably kate Purdy and raphael Bob Waxberg big parts of that mm-hmm. were the just the just the sheer uh compassion that every character was given yeah it was really uh really commendable
0: yeah yeah J- not just in not just compassion but like the genuine multifaceted depth that every single one of them has like uh, you know mr peanut butter is one of the most surface level characters for the first like couple seasons of that show mm-hmm. and then just um, as soon as they start focusing on him a little bit more you're like oh jesus christ that's why you're so surface level oh my god i'm so sorry <laughs> like <laughs> and the his whole kind of uh, process with Diane And their divorce and everything Like it's Yeah it's, it's, it's a heavy series
3: It's a heavy series Yeah
0: Yeah that's cool I, um, I didn't know that that show Had such an impact on you
1: Oh I mean I, I don't really think it did um, But I just can't I just can strongly recommend against Watching it on LSD
3: because then oh, you will spend yeah. the
1: whole time sitting there trying to think about how it could or couldn't relate to your life. And that's just horrible for obvious yep. reasons. That is horrible. There, There is no, like, <laughs> there's no need for that for anybody except for maybe, like, some of the
0: worst people in the world. Maybe, like, narcissists should watch BoJack oh, Horseman on LST. <laughs> like, ser- narcissists
1: who are also, like, serial predators of some kind. Right, yeah, there you go. Because, I mean, it, it's, you know, I was fine you know. a couple days later, but mm-hmm. it could have
0: been really bad. If they watch enough episodes while on LSD, maybe the next time they go to the bathroom, they'll just be looking at a horse in the mirror, and then they'll have a moment where they realize <laughs> that they need, to, they need to make some changes. Yeah, I,
1: th- I think, you know, when people talk about how some people just, they just need to go away. I think those people might need to watch BoJack Horseman on a heavy dose of psychedelics.
3: Yeah,
0: yeah, that's a good, that's a good point or a good comparison. It's I
1: like mean, a, it's like Clockwork Orange, but with um, <laughs> less eyeball scratching.
0: Yeah, and screaming. Well, maybe not, but um, are, is there any like, so it, if BoJack Horseman isn't one of the ones that had like a profound impact, is there any like art? From a standpoint of, like, books or TV or movies that did?
4: Like uh, do you have,
3: you have a list of a few?
4: I
1: I don't really. I mean, genuinely, like, it, I understand that it, it probably did and continues to come across as a, a, a posture. Um, but, like, I'm not joking when I say that I read Gravity's Rainbow and thought, well, this is the book I wanted to read. Thanks. There's the book I wanted to write. Thanks. <laughs> like, it, Reading that book is a, a deeply disturbing situ- experience for me because it is far too much like what my thought process is. And, um, so in that sense, yes. And in a similar sure. sense, uh, Moby Dick.
3: Okay. Um,
0: how old were you when you read Gravity's Rambo for the first time?
1: I was uh, 22.
0: Okay, gotcha.
1: Yeah.
3: I mean, that's that's was that your first pinch-on that you'd read?
1: No, uh, my first was Mason and Dixon. Okay. And then I
3: read V and uh, Lot 49. Yeah.
0: I, I mean that that's that's if nothing else. I, I mean, a, I believe you. B, I don't think it's necessarily pretentious, but it is impressive that you get to the end of that book and then be like, "Well, that's what I wanted to write, but it's already been written."
1: <laughs> well, you know, it's it's a it's an audacious way to phrase it, um, mm-hmm. and in that sense, it is a posture. Um, but it is true that like it, you know, I I wasn't sitting around thinking of. I didn't have you know, it's one of those things where. I can say that completely honestly with the recognition that I did not like have it planned out, mm-hmm. which is the hard part. <laughs> <laughs> that is indeed the hard part. Like the the, the truth is I, I, I could see why people would find it to be a pretentious thing to say. Um, and I, I say it as that, so that I have a character for people to attach to on the, on the podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, but no, like it, like all the, the things it's getting at, the things it's getting at, and the things that I talk around when it comes to um, like character development in Pynchon's novels, mm-hmm. I do really think are, um, are the way that books should be written. I, I, it, it's very frustrating for me um, to, to read the way people talk about like, oh, Katya is a two-dimensional character. Just a collection of things they write. A, write a he he wrote words about the characters, and you're supposed to believe they're there. Well, yeah. What do you do with other books? <laughs> well, <laughs> it's all about you deciding to believe in a character or not. Mm-hmm. And he's just he just took that to the logical extreme. But anywho, yeah, just you know. Uh, those those books are very important to me. And beyond that, um, no, I mean, I don't... I'm I'm strange, because I obviously have formative experiences
4: with media, but I I, I try sure. not to attach to things in general.
3: You think there's, like, any specific reason for
0: that? Just you don't want to add something to your person? No, that's, that's wrong, but, like you don't want to become identifiable too strongly with just like the same set of three things or whatever.
1: Well, I don't want my mind to feel comfortable <clears throat> just returning to the same things. Sure.
0: That
1: makes sense. That's, that's really all it is. Yeah. It's it. Yeah. Like, uh, you know, I don't know. Like it, it's genuinely hard for me to say what's my favorite album or something. Cause I, I, you know, I like a lot of, a lot of music. I like a lot of books. I like a lot of movies. <laughs>
0: Yeah, man, I don't know if I would be able to pick a favorite album. There'd be too many choices for that. Like, I can understand that thought process. I can't relate to it, but I think that has more to do with the fact that I have autism than anything else, where my brain works in very much the opposite direction, where it latches onto something and then is like, this is our thing now. If you don't let go of this thing, this is our interest. Um,
3: but, yeah, I, it's it's...
0: Too difficult for me to pick a favorite album or to pick a favorite movie. I do have a favorite book, but that has more to do with the effect that reading Infinite Jest had on my life than anything else. Sure. It, it, it isn't necessarily a quality of the the novel, so to speak. Just has to do with the fact that that book very much illuminated how unhappy as a person I was, and I started to fix that about myself. <laughs>
1: Yeah, that 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 makes sense. <laughs> well, I mean, the thing, is, my brain does attach to things, and I think that's why I I don't identify with them. Mm-hmm. Is because I I my brain will do it for me, and then once that's over, I don't find like I, I I've I've consciously kept that distance so that once my brain moves on to the next special special interest, whatever it may be, mm-hmm. um, it doesn't. Like there's no rejiggering of my identity for it.
3: Oh, that makes sense.
1: Because like I legitimately, like I I can spend all day thinking about, um. Like Thomas Pynchon's uh, ethos of writing and the ways that like, it's cl- like it's clear that Mineland was him trying to compromise with the the reality that some of the critics had real criticisms. Mm -hmm. And some of them were people not getting the point Mm -hmm. and just deciding, all right, I will do both. And that's why I have such uh, persnickety uh, opinions on characterization in Vineland.
0: Sure, yeah.
3: Because I do spend a lot of time thinking about it. I mean, that would
0: also explain why you like Mason and Dixon so much too, because that's... Sort of an extension of that compromise, but he did it more successfully. Well,
1: um, you know, it was the first of like, so I, I was, I don't, you know, I know you listened to the episode where I talked about it, but it's been a long time, and you weren't in the conversation. The, I was one of those guys who read a lot of books when they were young, and then fell out of practice with it, um, thanks to just too much assigned reading. Mhm. Uh-huh. And um like I I, f- I found this uh this person on a forum that I frequent had written this uh this this uh syllabus of readings for a hypothetical literature class. And uh-huh. they didn't explain at all what it was going to do. But it you know it started with Mason and Dixon, and it ended with Don Quixote and the recognitions was in the middle there and so was Libra by delilo and all this stuff and I had uh, gotten i got i got done with college and i uh you know read catch twenty mm-hmm. two and i and I um read the Pillars of the Earth and I was like, okay, read a long book check, read a complicated book check, I can read things <laughs> that didn't go away. <laughs> And I read, you know, half of the Discworld novels. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: And then I saw this curriculum and I was like, I should, you know, I remember I was 14 and I downloaded Gravity's Rainbow. And I said, well, this is above my pay grade. (laughs) So seeing Mason and Dixon on there and seeing that the end of it all was Don Quixote, I was like, all right. I don't know what point this guy's trying to make with this curriculum. And I don't know what... uh, you know, I don't know any of these other books. I don't, I didn't even know Mason and Dixon except that like a, a history teacher in my high school had mentioned it at being like, you know, once you're a little bit older, you should read this if you're interested. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I started Mason and Dixon. and I was like, yeah, I mean, this guy gets what writing is about. And so in a sense, I guess you could say Mason and Dixon was a formative experience, but then you could also say that like, any, any book I've read um, is if because you know I do restrict it to what to, to the subject matter, I guess.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Did you do you think you have an idea of what the, the point of that curriculum was now that you've after like finishing all of it? Yeah,
1: I think it does. I think that that curriculum has given me my concept of postmodernism.
3: Oh, uh, um, okay
1: and i I've, i have refined it as years have gone by at this point
3: but yeah yeah that makes sense with just the
0: couple that you that you named i can see how that would form sort of a a slate or a definitional idea of what postmodernism is cuz don quixote is is certainly got some postmodern elements especially in the second half
1: yeah. So okay. Uh, the the full list was in order: uh, Mason and Dixon, Death Comes for the Archbishop by Willa Cather, Okay, um, Pale Fire, One Hundred yeah. Years of Solitude, Yeah, and then uh, an intermission of um, Pilgrim at Tinker Creek, Holy the Firm, and For the Time Being by Annie Dillard, um, An Elemental Thing by Elliot Weinberger, and then The Periodic Table by Primo Levi. Mm. And then picking back up with the main curriculum, Libra, uh, a collection of Borges, which I went with uh, the Aleph because I'm a, I, I am a, I am a, a, a real chronology reader. Mm-hmm. Um, the Recognitions, and then Franny and Zoe before Don Quixote.
3: Okay, Franny and Zoe is an interesting one to
1: include there yeah and in the context of that reading list what it really does is it cements kind of the the idea of being willfully spiritual and not being fearfully spiritual mm-hmm. but i mean yeah. I, for i i wish i could recommend everybody read those what 10 12 books because mm-hmm. i do think that in concert, they do actually flesh out something very important for most people.
0: I could definitely see that. I haven't read all of them, so I would, I would certainly be curious to go through that process. Can you send me the link to that uh,
3: curriculum? <clears throat> Thank you.
4: Yeah. Yeah. Um, And
1: it's, it just, it's, uh, you know, I think it's a really good way to, even beyond any kind of self-improvement goal, I think that it is uh, kind of the perfect set of books to go from somebody who is completely literate to somebody who is like reading at a high level.
0: Yeah, I could especially see that too. Because,
1: I mean, the truth is I have never had a literature class past high school. No? Nope. Um, huh. It's it just all all based on, you know, some pretty good high school teachers, if I'm honest. Um, mm-hmm. And then, you know, self-directed stuff. And I credit those books for really giving me the firmament of actually being able to
3: read complicated stories. Yeah, that's super cool. Yeah, I, well, the thing that I would, like... Have you ever read Vulture's
0: uh um fuck article? That's the word I was thinking of, um on their their like proposed early twentieth century canon of literature. No, I don't think so. It's actually really interesting how they compiled it and
3: what you're kind of describing from a standpoint
0: deliberate pipeline to read at a higher level. I think if someone was to adapt this vulture list to do the same thing, I think they'd be pretty successful at it. In fact, I've, I usually refer to this list when I get questions from people on like, I read mostly romance or I read mostly like, you know, YA or genre fiction. How can I like read more, you know, quote unquote like literature? Um, If I remember correctly, they basically reached out to like, a hundred critics or something like that. Um, And they basically just said like, what do you think that so far in the, in the two thousands has been the like best books or most important books? Um, They, they, I think asked for like a list of 100 and then they took all of these lists that they got from people and they tallied up the amount of books that there was, that there was like synergy in what was voted for by the different critics. And so the, the book that had the most tallies is like the best book um, of the century so far. And then they had 12 books that all had, I think, three or more votes, if I remember correctly. And then uh, after those, they had like 10, I think, or 15 books that had two. And then uh, there was, like, honorable mentions for other stuff that um, was, was, like, particularly called out or defended by their critics or something along those lines. I don't remember the exact process, but there's a lot of, like, really interesting stuff on on that list that they
3: put together
4: that I'd love to...
0: yeah, go ahead.
3: What were you going to say? Oh no, you're fine. I was basically at the end
0: of my statement.
1: I was just gonna say I, I I'm scrolling through it, and it does seem like a it's it's a lot of books that I have heard of and have like on my to get to eventually list. Mm-hmm. So it's nice to to have them all in one place.
0: Yeah, I may or may not have like a printed out list that, as I read something off of it, I, I cross it off. Yeah, yeah. But that's cool. I'll have to also add this this proposed lit curriculum to that. I have I have three lists. I've got the the Vulture twenty first century literature canon. I've got my my mentors' books of must read science fiction, um, which he handed out for a final project in his science fiction class, um, and now this 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 lit list
1: yeah the the, the the real downside to that list is the um, the utter prevalence of male authors.
0: Yeah, that is true.
1: It's, it's, uh, <laughs> it is an issue because like, just following from there, it's very hard to find um, all, like the painful thing about the way that like online literary forums have gone. Is that you get like this horrible mishmash of all sorts of like, quote unquote, literary novels Mm -hmm. that are written by women and they're fine books, but they are not ambitiously written because they're not ambitious authors. And the, you know, it's like this, it really does seem like, like publishers just like look at long books by women and say, nah. (laughs) <laughs> when you look at the way that it's reflected into like online discussion forums
0: yeah, other than like maybe Duck's Newberry Port, but yeah. that's probably the most contemporary example that I can think of for that uh yeah, you know, books of Jacob, but yeah, that's about it yeah like and that's that's always a weird thing for me too, like being a woman whenever people ask me like what I read or what I'm super into, you know, especially with the um how did you put it the Yassification of uh of like literary fiction or whatever? Literary discourse. Um yeah, the Yassification of Literary Discourse. Why did that activate Google on my phone? Um Like it, it always feels very weird for me to pull out like a lot of these these, you know, stereotypical like male or stereotypical like dick lit authors to use a stupid phrase that I've seen parroted online a bunch of times. Because there is something very weird in me being like, but I also like, there is so much like good stuff written by, by women, but it doesn't necessarily cross over into the same exact, um, like realm that a lot of these, these stereotypical male authors are writing about. And it's, it's always been a, a weird, a weird tension for me in the things that I read, which is why I'm very thankful for the, the kind of new wave of women who are writing the kind of books that Julie Armfield is writing that I talked about in that bonus episode. Cause that, Feels like, not this, It's not the same thing, obviously, but is sort of a, a compartmentalized movement of of young women who are writing books that have certainly something more on its mind than just than just you know the the events on the page and are are reaching for something a bit more ambitious at times.
1: Yeah, and there, there always have been you know mm-hmm. women writing books that are ambitious. It's just a question of how much like actual coverage do they get how many how many advanced copies get sent to critics
0: you know it's not much
1: it really seems like almost none
0: yeah yeah you have to it seems like for a lot of women they have to like find another way to make their material stand out in particular um and then off of the basis of that they gain access to to that promotion like otessa Mashveg with the 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 shocking nature of, of how she describes you know like bodily functions or or things like that uh-huh. um, that was like an easy thing for them to attach attach themselves to in, in a critical byline or in a pull quote yeah
1: well, it, like, you know i i think about this far too much
0: mm-hmm. but I, and i i mean
1: specifically this um, james wood's essay human all too inhuman um, about Zadie Smith's White Teeth? Oh, sure. Like, that that's a novel that I take great issue with the way that people talk about it. People talk about it as though it's an encyclopedic novel.
0: There yeah, it's not. <laughs>
1: are, yeah, it's not. There are two ways that you could possibly mean encyclopedic novel. One is in the sense that the term was coined, which it just isn't, clearly. Mm-hmm. And the other is as, like, a, you know, oh, it's tying together... Basically, it's thematically driven rather than character driven, Mm -hmm. which sure, maybe, but not really. Mm -hmm. And um, like, I read the way that James Wood responded to that novel, and I just think, is this what most female authors get when they (laughs) submit something that is like, (laughs) like, you know, postmodern in any way, shape, or form? Mm -hmm. Like, really, this guy's blaming Zadie Smith for Don DeLillo? And like Philip K. Dick, Mm -hmm. it's, it's crazy. And it's one of those things where like, I in particular do really fall into the category that you, you, you jokingly derided earlier in the show, like in way back in early Mason and Dixon talking Mm -hmm. about like fans of Pynchon who are, who, who are want the most postmodern stuff. And I, I do. It's because I really want a book that I can sit there and simultaneously, like, be invested in a character and fully inside of, like, a perspective while, like, you know, having actual story happening at the same time. <laughs> like, that, that for me is what reading, that's the peak of reading for me. And that's why I've come to the conclusion that a novel is not what I would like to write if I write things.
0: Sure. Yeah. And,
1: um you know, looking for for female authors in that realm is impossible. Because that's a, like That's a good question. Yeah. You get Virginia Woolf. That's true. You do get Virginia Woolf and you know, you like there's Toni Morrison. Uh-huh. And genuinely I can't find others and I know they're out there. I believe they're out there. Um, But you can't look for them in the same way that you look for the male authors. And there isn't an easy bridge between those. uh, They're not even separate realms, obviously not separate (laughs) realms. Right, yeah. Those those two, (laughs) like, you know, marketing
3: camps. Yeah. That's, yeah, and I,
0: I, I do wonder what the result of that is, right? Like, is it a case that most women who write just don't have an attraction to writing that kind of? book or is it just a case where, you know, through the publishing industry being what it is, there's no promotion? Is it a combination of the two? Is, you know, is there's there's some kind of deliberate uh miscategorization happening with anything. I think like so the the people that I was talking about in that episode, because I do remember that quote of mine is like, I, I don't know if I would necessarily you totally fall into that because you are willing to say that other writing has merit. I feel like a lot of those people that I was talking about seem to think that if it isn't postmodern, the most postmodern, there's really no need to pay it any kind of attention. Right? It's where, well, I mean, yeah, it's where. Me,
1: if you want me to go full, full as pretentious as I get, I yeah. will defend to the death that Moby Dick is not a, 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 a what's the fucking term? Uh, unreliable narrator. Mm. he's not it's not an unreliable narrator the narrator disappears that's true but anyway anyway like i okay please continue i get what you're saying
0: yeah um it seem in in my experience it seems like a lot of the women who do something similar either write shorter books like i would say that like jenny awful who wrote like department Mm -hmm. of speculation and and uh weather is orbiting something similar, but her books are very short, um, or at least certainly shorter than most stuff that falls into this, you know, the postmodern category. Or I think Zadie Smith is actually a really good example because Zadie Smith is like a, a devotee of David Foster Wallace. Like that's like her biggest inspiration. But what Zadie Smith took from David Foster Wallace's new sincerity was like the earnestness and sincerity and character portrayal perspective, but did not bring along the encyclopedic nature of his writing. Like, Zadie Smith would not write The Pale King. She certainly would not write, you know, Infinite Jest, but the characters that exist in both Infinite Jest and The Pale King could, in my mind, exist in a Zadie Smith novel. There would just be some dilution that would take place there because they are not necessarily symptomatic of something larger going on within the 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 storyline and the thematic elements to it Yeah. so it it seems like a lot like there's there are a lot of people who come close to that or take elements of it out but do not fully translate the same thing like i would love to read you know a a version of Numbers by Joshua Cohen written by a woman or like, you know, anything Adam Levin has written. I would love to, to read a book like that from the perspective of, of a woman who's writing. And I guess to a certain extent, if I ever become a novelist, that's what I would hope to do. Um, but who knows, you know, in the final accounting, my own writing is, is still different from, from the, these kind of authors that we talk about so often.
1: Oh yeah. And you know, it's not going to be the same. Yeah, absolutely.
0: Yeah. But I, I do think it's curious that you do end up with, with the, the, the final point of all the long winded yapping is just like, you do end up with certainly women who are writing similar things or taking elements of that out, but don't fully take it to the, the kind of maximalist, um, perspective or encyclopedic perspective that a lot of these things are and I I wonder if some of that does get determined by who is going to buy it like if a woman does bring you know um, the book of numbers to a publisher is a publisher going to publish that or is the fact that she is a woman and therefore most of her readers are going to be women um going to change what that publisher decides to publish because they don't think that it's going to sell. I think that that's another big part of it too, is that, you know, when you look at like one of the stereotypes of people, uh, who listen to our podcast, certainly. And, and like the four of us, right. If you look at like our slash bookshelf where people just upload photos of their bookshelves, that when you see all those books that like we are interested in, the amount of times where there is nothing written by a women by a woman on that bookshelf is like you know nine times out of ten, right? Oh, absolutely, yeah. Um, so I I I wonder if it isn't just from a a, a lack of open mindedness by the broad majority of people who who would buy a book like that.
1: Well, yeah. So like that's the thing is I it would be really easy to sum it up to that, and I think that's a big part of it, especially when we're talking about people who are posting pictures of their bookshelf online. Mm-hmm. I think there's a lack of self-awareness just inherent <laughs> to that. <laughs> but no, I mean, just, you know, the, the, you get what I mean. I do. Yeah. Like it, and so like when I look back and I look at, you know, like early modernist authors who were women,
0: mm-hmm. a
1: lot of that stuff verges in that same degree of maximalist formal usage.
0: It does. You're absolutely right. And then it right.
1: disappeared and especially in the postmodern movement like just women who wrote in the the again i keep going back to ambitious because i don't know a better way to phrase it because it's it's not about like the other books that aren't formally experimental not being ambitious in their own ways but mm-hmm. there there's a certain sort of desire to to fuse the the form and the function that i i see a lack of ambition toward in the vast majority of books and it seems like it seems like at this point there have been like 50 years of like it just being men writing these big audacious books and people saying well that's something only men do and right yeah even when women are writing ambitious novels that are shorter and shorter in length or smaller in scope but still as as uh, grandiose in purpose Mm-hmm. they're they're just shuffled away into like the the same category as any other contemporary fiction rather than being treated as something uh that is uh you know, an attempted magnum opus.
0: Yeah, that's very true. That is very true. And I th- yeah, it it cuz like
1: I I serious, I have I look for books by women that are Oh, I believe I, I, you. I, and I'm, you know, I like I said, I've been in a real reading slump lately, and so I mm-hmm. haven't gotten around to Julie Armstrong or Tessa Moshfay and all that stuff. And they're all on my list. But it, I spent years looking for authors that were not white guys writing books like this. Mm-hmm. And there is, like a, there is a gap in terms of marketing and or discourse. It, it, there it, is. It can't just be summed up as people not being open-minded.
0: Well, I think the other thing too is that. Like, so the your last, um, your last statement reminded me of uh, an interview between Charlie Rose and David Foster Wallace, where David Foster Wallace, um, I think Charlie Rose like asked him why the book was so long, um, which is a real, just inane question to ask in an interview. It's, uh, it's a funny one though, <laughs> but. You know, it, it, during his his response, David Foster Wallace talked about how a lot of um, a lot of like critics say that men write these these long, ambitious to use your phrase books because they they are they're doing some sort of imposing of their own phallus on the world around them. Right. And David Foster Wallace's response to that was I I certainly don't think that applies to to the process of my book here, but. If it did apply, it was going on in a level of consciousness that I do not want to be aware of. And I I feel like if Because I think actually Duck's Newberry Report is a good example of this because that does feel like such an easy pull for a, you know, ambitious both form and function novel written by a woman that would potentially fit into that same category. I mean, the entire book is one sentence. It's, you know, incredibly long. It is this you know it does have the a a near encyclopedic scope as far as what it's about will also be lo- being localized to like this one woman and this, this one, one family yeah. right and the way that that book that i have seen it sort of jokingly treated is just another piece of dicklet and just somehow still reduced down to that sort of imposing of one's phallus on the world completely Completely, you know, discounting the fact that she is, is, is a woman writing this novel, and that that inherently brings with it an entirely different set of circumstances and perspectives that wouldn't really make that, I'll be generous and say philosophical argument, possible. Um, yeah. It's a psychoanalytic <laughs> argument. <laughs> yeah. Like, so I, I feel like if, you know, w- another one of these books were to to rise to the forefront and get published like we're kind of talking about it isn't out of the realm of possibility for me to imagine that the same thing just wouldn't happen again and it wouldn't get the the equal promotion or press that it should be due to it and you know the opposite end of that coin also sucks like i think that there is a lot of stuff in Otessa Mashveg's novels, particularly Death in Her Hands, as far as how she structures that novel and how um, the character and the reader almost fuse into one person as the result of reading that novel, that it deserves significantly more distinction within a category of experimental or in a category of, you know, ambitious beyond the norm. You know, is it encyclopedic? No. Is it talking about um, you know, some sort of broad maximalist ideas of of the world or, you know, philosophy or anything like that? No, but does it play with with frame and form, and does it completely play tricks on the reader that reveal themselves in a manner devastating to both the protagonist and the reader at the same time? Absolutely. but Because there is this stupid, I'll say, meme culture that has arisen around Otessa Moshfeg as being, like, the sad white girl author, and, you know, all of this the same stuff that gets applied to, like, Fleabag, to use another, you know, contemporary example, it doesn't seem to get the same um, focus that if the same book were written by a man that it would it it it, it's i think it comes down to the same weird bias that people have where they they approach books written by men and women differently in what they emphasize in in its criticism which is is a weird facet of human nature
1: (laughs) yeah definitely like i you know it for me it's not it's not even about like oh i want i want metafiction it's just Mm -hmm. that like You go back to, uh, literally, I I bring up Jane Austen more than pretty much any other author, uh, except for Cormac McCarthy in the podcast, because I think that she kind of figured it out. She kind of nailed what (laughs) writing novels should be, in in my mind. And then we just spent like 150 years coming up with other ways to write novels that don't seem better to me. That's, That's completely fair and i i find it really weird the way that like people chalk up jane austen's books as oh they're difficult because it's oh it's hard to imagine what it's like back then as though you know it's hard to imagine having a servant buttoning your corset Mm -hmm. um or like oh she uses these words that people haven't seen before (laughs) yeah no it's difficult because she's writing in a in a in a, such a wry tone that you can't actually just read the words and get what you can't just read one sentence and understand what the sentence is saying. Mm-hmm. And there, there are all of these authors, both men and women, who fulfilled these the these this minimum of uh, you know uh, the, the synthesis between form and uh, message. But they're just not talked about in those ways. It's like the, the the critical establishment has given up on actually doing anything other than saying, "Well, this is a big book." Well, this is a this is a disturbing book. Uh, this, this is a book about being 23 and depressed. This mm-hmm. is a book about alcoholism. Like it, that's what it seems like the, the critical apparatus has collapsed into, and it's not like it was better back way back when but it sucks to to live with it as it is now
0: yeah no and well and i think you're you're arriving at kind of the the proverbial head of this nail in that there there doesn't seem to be the same apparatus for not just reviewing uh books critically but also for people to take that and and digest it critically and i actually think that you know Funny questions or not, um, Charlie Rose is an interesting symptom of this, that as as recently as the 90s, you would have a unstructured half hour long interview between a author that Charlie Rose just found interesting and a guy who otherwise did like political news on his, his TV program that was watched by millions of people right like if you if you tried to do the same primetime show where i don't even know what what would be a good show like well, donna tart did a couple episodes of of charlie rose if donna tart came back on television right or sally rooney um or not that i would want to listen to him but dave eggers um came on tv and 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 was part of a unstructured half hour long interview just talking about the art of writing or book publishing or you know what their forthcoming novel is about i don't that would not be a successful television program but charlie rose was very successful for you know up and up until the the late 2000s i would say is when his name got dropped off and then you know it turned out he was actually sexually assaulting people so he completely dropped off um so i think that it it also comes with a with a broader sort of lack of consciousness or or uh, cultural interest in reading, which you know obviously if you're gonna have a if you're gonna have a literary criticism section to your magazine or your newspaper, um, and you're in a capitalistic society, you know you're all about getting as much engagement or clicks or you know ad buys or whatever, which determine is determined by eyes it's going to be a lot more compelling to shorten your review or dialogue about a a newly published text down to oh yeah she's a 23-year-old sad millennial or like oh yeah you know this is a book about about alcoholism or the struggles of parenting or whatever than it is to to get into the real weeds of like what a book is doing and why and what the the sort of literary tradition it may owe some some uh, debt to would be that's that's just not going to there's no money to be made out of that anymore i feel
1: yeah then that, i think that's completely right And i'm not sure there ever was a lot of money to it there may not have been
0: <laughs> yeah because
1: i mean you know the only similar example i can think of that was really happening in my lifetime was oprah
0: oh sure yeah and
1: like sure she had tony morrison and cormac mccarthy on but really she had them on so that she would get the money from the publisher or whatever Mm -hmm. like there's not actually anything (laughs) like i bet i am betting that when drew barrymore inevitably has jillian flynn on her show they're not going to be talking about what it is to be a writer or what it is to write a a thriller they're going to be talking about like silly things that happened in her latest screenplay
0: (laughs) yeah that's that's very true I I would love it if if uh Gillian Flynn started writing novels again. I I think Gone Girl is a book that is has far more going on at its heart than uh than just a a airport thriller as it's kind of been castigated as.
1: Yeah, that's kind of the sense I've gotten of it have, having not read the book.
0: It's it's interesting. Um, you know, it, obviously we we talk a lot on this show about like how you know, I think it was you who said that um, none of these thoughts that we're coming up with, listeners, is is off the top of our heads. This is, uh, you know, after years of reading and rereading these books and obsessing over them. I think that in that same vein, in going back to Gone Girl the second time, because uh, I loved it the first time and I found it very like entertaining and very you know gripping and and all the things that you want out of like a a, a thriller of the airport variety or otherwise, but the, the significant increase in my estimation of it, the second time through, especially was amongst probably the highest that I've ever received off of just reading a book twice. I think I've read it four times now, but like Mm -hmm. you, as soon as you kind of understand the premise and what she's going, going towards and, and what, um, and that, like what twists are coming and all of that, as soon as that's out of the way, And instead you're left with the sort of just the content, like the bare content of these characters and everything you're, you're left with this novel that is about, you know, what it means to be in a relationship and how being in a relationship does somehow kind of in the same, in the same direction that like Phantom Thread by PTA goes in that being in a relationship does require some degree of death of yourself prior to that relationship. Like you need to let your partner kill you a little bit. Um because that's that's what it means to be in a partnership. You can't just be, you know, the same person outside of your relationship that you are in it cuz you're you're half of a whole or at least you're supposed to be. And the the book sort of takes on instead this this concept of like what does it mean to truly adopt that mask? What is that what does it mean to truly, you know, let your partner kill you a little bit and and change your your functions as a human being to to suit this this half of a whole mentality and i remember i was struck incredibly heavily by the argument that ensues between the uh the, the co-protagonists after the whole like game is up you know after the the whole mask is over they just get into this like this screaming match with one another where i don't think i picked up on the the narrative and the the thematic resonance of that whole uh, argument between them until I'd already been through it. And even to this day, not to claim that, you know, I'm the best reviewer on Goodreads or whatever, I don't see a lot of that being mentioned in people's reviews on Goodreads. I take the time to talk about it, but like, it seems like, again, it's just this, let's boil this down to like a couple, a couple keywords, like a couple of, you know, uh, easily digestible phrases when there's, there's a lot more to be the mind out of a lot of this stuff
1: yeah and I, I do think that when you when you bring up goodreads you do we you know it does push the conversation into the direction of us you know having to acknowledge that consumerism is kind of the the core of these issues yeah like because yeah gone like okay so I, having seen the movie i picked up just about as much as you have said here, as to the, the thematic content of that, that story, and I have no clue how good the movie was as an adaptation. And I have mm-hmm. no preconceived notions really of the book because I, you know, I did see the movie and I did see that there is more going on to it than just like just the thriller. Mm-hmm. Um, but like you know, people go on Goodreads and they are writing you know a few sentences so that when they remember, oh, yeah, I wrote that book. What did I think? (laughs) I read that book. What did I think (laughs) about that? You know, they can have something that fills their minds so that they don't feel like, ah, I read these books and I don't even remember them. Mm -hmm. And, you know, then you have people like you who are actually trying to advise people reading the review as to what is good or bad about the book or at least what you felt worked or didn't work. Yeah, And they are fundamentally divergent demands from a con from the the consumer side of that relationship of do i want to see whether something is an enjoyable read or do i want to see whether this is like what, what what this book is
0: yeah i guess in a lot of way goodreads is just sort of people's like publicly available commonplace book i guess this yeah. is- is how a lot of those things shake out. But I I mean, to go back to your, your phrase of yassification, like it seems like, you know, people who take literary criticism or literary reviews, and then those get yassified into the stuff on Goodreads, like people reviewing books as their dog or, you know, reviewing books solely through gifts or, you know, these, these like one or two word placement things. I, I think the same thing has happened from a consumeristic element of like, annotation. Like I annotate books. I also don't put a hundred and seventy eight little post it note flags in every book that I read. Um and <laughs> and have, you know, six different pens that I utilize to to like underline things that relate to one theme or another and then by the end of it, you know, I I more have a diary than I do, you know, a novel. I think that there is there is that heavily consumeristic element to all of it now where like the only reason why that style of annotation caught on is because people posted it on like Instagram, right? And it, it looks, it looks a certain way and it fulfills a certain sort of, um, aesthetic charm that people have in their mind about what it means to be someone who reads. Um, and that, that kind of becomes, a an Ouroboros, I think of, of just people continuing to feed on the same thing over and over again. Same with, same with Goodreads. I've been on Goodreads for a really long time um i joined that website i think in 2012 and to watch it go from what it was um to what it is now has been a very weird process
1: yeah i can't i mean the closest i can think of the the only similar experience i have is in watching reddit become what it is
0: oh that's a good one
1: goodreads i mean seems like it used to have such a specific culture that has entirely been cannibalized.
0: It, Yeah, it, it really did. Um, I would agree with that. You know, there was a, as a, I guess, a humble brag, there was a time where I was in the top 100 reviewers on that site, and then eventually the top 10. Um, it was not, you know, necessarily a long period of time, but uh, in that period, I, you know, that was a legitimate place to, like, network and advance the concept of, uh, like, like self-led reviewing and conversation about books. Like, you know, I got a couple of, of books sent to me by, by Penguin Press, uh, during that period where they wanted me to review them. Um, I fucked up that potential business relationship because it took me too long for me to read the books that they sent me to post a review. Um, (laughs) but you know, that, that was a place where that was certainly very possible for almost everybody who used that platform and there was a lot there was like a healthy amount of like discussion and like groups that existed on that platform too and um you know i i had a couple of conversations with authors through that platform and everything like it it was a very specific culture that the original founders were going for that i think they did capitalize on and and were able to you know, propagate for a while, but it I and I don't I don't know what caused this sudden expansion in popularity, which then of course, you know, every time you have, you know, too many people in your hangout, it's gonna fundamentally change, right? But it yeah. it it did it did turn into what it is now, uh in relatively short order in the grand scheme of things. Um which is is weird because the website does not work very well. The mobile app works even worse, even though, you know, this is a company that's owned by Amazon. There's nothing aesthetically pleasing about Goodreads as a website that would necessarily attract people to it. Um, and you know, even even now, like, when you're creating your profile, the in the profile editor one of the one of the like lines you can fill in for displaying on your profile what it says in the editor is different from what it displays as right and that's been a glitch that's Seriously? been there yeah absolutely um let me let me pull up my my goodreads real real quick because i'm trying to remember what what prompt it was um
3: on goodreads
0: Underneath uh, favorite books, so on, on the display, it says favorite books, and then I just have my, my top ten shelf featured. But if you go into editing your profile, instead of favorite books, it says, what kind of books do you like to read, is what it says. Well. Um, and that has been the case for as long as i've used this platform and that's like a real simple thing to fix
1: that's yeah <laughs> seriously <laughs> and so it's like it's a real testament to the misaligned objectives i guess of users on goodreads that StoryGraph and all those other competitors have taken off as quickly as they did because mm-hmm. i mean yeah i mean like like i said i i was never a goodreads user but I might have an account. I might have signed up for it way back in the day, and I. The thing that really, for me, settled that Goodreads as a project was not going to end up being kind of what you what you described it back in like 2012 as wanting it to be, mm-hmm. um, was when uh, a friend of mine, unrelated to anything else, just started sending me GoodRead reviews of like classic, classical texts. Oh, yeah. Like, of people reviewing the Divine Comedy. Mm Mm-hmm. And him just getting furious at the, the gall of all these people criticizing these works. And I just, I was sitting there, like, trying to explain over and over again that, like, this is not... These are not, like, reviews of the book. These are people's opinions of how it made them feel to read it. And he just couldn't handle that kind of uh, that bait and switch of the the promise of the website, I guess. Mm -hmm. And I just uh, it continually comes back to me as like kind of the epitome of misalignment in a user base. Because yeah, I don't know how you solve that with Goodreads, because those are both very valid reasons to use something like Goodreads. And yet it doesn't serve either purpose at this point.
0: Yeah, it, it, it that's that's a really elegant way to break it down. I, and it's not compartmentalized enough to where, you know, the side that just uses it as a, a you know, online commonplace book or like an on, online diary or whatever doesn't bleed over into the people who are, you know, trying to to provide analysis or uh, like a genuine like breakdown of what works and what doesn't in a book. Um, And just as, as a result of that, it, it comes across very confused and what ends up becoming like popular or widely, you know, publicized on that platform just comes down to effectively a popularity contest. Um,
1: Yeah. I mean, I I pulled up gone girls page and the top, like five reviews are like, you know, clever jokes. But jokes <laughs> or like book booktubers and book talkers, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. And it's like it's, you know gen, gen generally, like, there's nothing wrong with the with the people making those videos on YouTube or TikTok or whatever. The issue is that like <laughs> Why are they at the top of the Goodreads reviews?
0: Yeah, like like why why does why does uh, this review have you know sixteen hundred likes or whatever? And it's always interesting to me because I have I have fifty friends on Goodreads and I actually do I actually like talk to them. It isn't a case where just like you know I I saw what kind of books they read and then and then sent them a friend request. Like most of these people, I've been friends with on Goodreads since like two thousand twelve. And so it is a case where like I actually kind of know these people and it's always fascinating to me to go through like if a book has been read by me and my friends on that platform and what their reviews are and then you just scroll just a little bit further to like the ones that, you know, any public user can see and just the significant difference that exists there between them is always entertaining to me. But I, and I think that like, I think that, um, like booktube is a perfect example of sort of what you just mentioned and what we've been talking about for a little bit now. And that like there are certain booktubers like, um, you know, leaf by leaf or like Seth at waste mailing um, or better than food or the book chemist that are operating in that like a bit more, you know, higher ambition or a bit more like seriousness in, in what they're trying to use this platform for. But that is not, you know, what BookTube as a whole is. You know, book booktube as a whole is a lot of people reading Brandon Sanderson or um making fun, funny joke videos about uh whether or not you like to crack the spine open on your paperback and if that makes you some kind of a sadist. Um or about like cozy mysteries or whatever and it, it it's telling when there's a when there's a proportional split between those things and that is amplified even worse by TikTok in my opinion because you end up with I I'm sure the same dichotomy exists on TikTok I'm not on that app but um the 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 unfortunate aspect of TikTok is that as a app with a lot of social utility and apparently, a fair amount of sway over culture. Book talk is now reinforcing what does and doesn't get published. I mean, if you go into a Barnes yeah. and Noble, you have book talk tables or book talk end caps, and the kind of stuff they're reading on there is is not better than food. <laughs> it's, it's 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 you know, Colleen Hoover. Colleen Hoover sold more copies of her books than than the Bible did one year, um, which is a which is a, a, a statistic that, that boggles the mind to think about. Um, and there either needs to come a time when the priorities of publishers realign against capital, which is unlikely, or everybody who's using BookTok gets old enough to where Colleen Hoover no longer scratches the same itch and they're forced to look at more... Um, for for lack of a more adequate term, serious uh, writing, you know, and and maybe the swing does push towards, you know, a a Jane Austen or a Virginia Woolf. Um, Jane Austen has enjoyed a bit of a renaissance in the past couple of years, which has been cool to see. Yeah, yeah. But a you know, by and large, I don't, I don't, I don't know what what can get people there. O- Otessa Moshfegh is the best example I've seen of people latching onto something that I think is, is working towards something more serious, but for a, a a social media aspect of, of reading as opposed to a actual, you know, content investment. Um, as, as we talked about, I don't think it ended up in the bonus episode. I think this was just a conversation we had like off mic, but the, the, what has become popular about my year of rest and relaxation is is not what that book is about. <laughs> like, it's, it's, it's such an illustration of you missed the point um, that it's genuinely kind of scary, that, like, if Pinchon did make his way into that world, like, what in the world would those people have to say about his writing? I, I shudder to think about that.
1: Well, and you, the nightmarish thing is that, like, what like mainstream media is talking about in Otessa Moshveg's works and what, you know, Goodreads is saying and what I imagine is going on on Book Talk, and some of the stuff I've seen people talking about it on YouTube or it, her work on YouTube. Mm-hmm. Um, it like based on everything you've said, the people on 4chan have a more accurate reading. The the like, <laughs> if if you go on the on slash lit, you will see a lot of people who are big fans of my year of rest and relaxation, mm-hmm. and they are actually engaging with it as literature. And it, I worry that at this point, given the fa- like the the utter like, and you know, I'm not I'm not one of those people who's terribly worried about you know TikTok killing people's brains. But I do think that it has a deleterious <laughs> impact on discourse if that's the primary way that people interact with other forms of art or other people discussing art. Mm-hmm. That It's just like, okay, are we going to get this weird further, like, in, I don't know what, what word I'm looking for, uh, entrenchment of this division that, that we've been talking about for the last hour now mm-hmm. um, in the form of, like, essentially, like, the only places that people talk about these things are either in like podcasts like this or backlisted um which are so niche Mm -hmm. or in like absolute cesspools
0: yeah (laughs) that's terrifying to me that the 4chan users understand otessa
1: well and it's because they are a bunch of (laughs) depressed creeps who understand what it's like to feel alienated from yourself and to like you know Mm -hmm. read books that are trying to do something more than just like relay your preconceived notions back at you
0: yeah but why the fuck aren't other people talking
1: about them in that way
0: i don't know (laughs) and that that and i you know yeah i I I I think my year of rest and relaxation is is the best example I can think of it is that like I don't know what propelled that book to what it is. I genuinely don't. Because is it what is it the cover with like the hot pink like like coloring with the classical with the classical like oil painting on it that just enough people were curious by that that they picked it up and then you know pulled some very surface level understanding of the protagonist out of it. Is it, I, I genuinely don't know what moved that book from another literary fiction novel being published in, in 2018 or whatever it was, um, by a, a almost completely unknown in the mainstream author, um, to, to being what it is now. I really don't know what that point of conversion is. And the, the fear that I would have to kind of like loop this back around to the, the starting point of like where are the women who are writing these books at is that if, if a truly, you know, maximalist postmodern both form and function fully ambitious novel were to be published, it, would it, would it catch some sort of wave that would lead to a, a my year of rest and relaxation thing? Like, would it need to have some weird audacious cover for it to get promoted and picked up on social media. And then would it have the same end result where you have people on 4chan or very niche podcasts really digging into the material of it. And then people on TikTok talking about how it's like real hot girl shit. Like, I don't, I don't know what that process would look like. Is that what would happen if this book came out or would it just be a case where nobody would pay attention to it at all? Um, you know, and, and it would just sort of vanish into the ether. You know, you walk into a bookstore, uh, like a Barnes Noble, I'll, I'll, I'll use the easiest example and there's gotta be what, 600 books in there written by women or men that almost nobody on the planet earth has read, but they're, they're there. Like it could, it could easily be one of those things where they do exist and it's just whatever, whatever heady mix of of ingredients requires it to at least get some sort of initial pulse just does not happen and and nothing else gets built out of that um or is it a case where where something else is keeping them from from breaking out into the mainstream and that's my biggest confusion around otessa Mashveg is just how that whole thing started in the first place i'm happy that she's making money. I'm happy that she's continuing to write stuff seemingly in the same vein although I haven't read her newest book yet so I don't know if she's you know changed as a result of the increased uh media scrutiny but it, it's it's confusing um and I would be I would be very curious to to watch as an observer if if an easily identifiable postmodernist you know woman um came along and 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 published some big encyclopedic book and and how that would be received if it was something that was actually put forward as a contender for for book of the year different awards
1: yeah so um two two examples actually before if you've got the time Mm -hmm.
2: um
1: firstly uh, i i my theory on my year of rest and relaxation is a very cynical one Mm -hmm. and it is um the confluence of um People looking for confirmation to their own like genuine desire to just like medicate themselves into non-existence mm-hmm. and people looking to lampoon that attitude and feel superior over the people they imagine the book is about. Yeah, um but the two books that come to mind two very ambitious novels that have come out in the last five years or so. Um, that i'm I'm, I'm curious um, to see more people read them and have opinions on them because the the opinions have been very sparse. The mm-hmm. most recent the more
4: recent one was the Rabbit Hutch by Tess gunty, which got the got got a pretty big award, which was it? Yeah, the National Book Award.
1: And it gets talked about as this very ambitious and very um, intentional novel. Mm -hmm. Um, And I've read most of it. And it's pretty good on like a paragraph-by-paragraph level.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: And it's very clearly influenced by Pynchon. Like Mm -hmm. there is this whole section of it that starts with – it has happened before, but never, it will never happen like this again.
0: Really? Yes. Like, it is very much. Like, she
1: she is trying to do what we're saying we would like more authors to be doing. Okay. Um, and I, I really, I have not finished the book, so I can't say whether it works all in all. Uh-huh. But what I can say is up to, like, the th- three quarters of the way through, um, I was really impressed on, again, on a sentence-by-sentence sentence level um and i felt like it felt like a first novel but it felt pretty good to hear this to, to hear because i was listening to an audiobook and then read the 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 like real poetry that she imbued her prose with and the, the way that she had written together the the themes into the structure of the plot and I was very satisfied. And then I go online and I see people's opinions of it. And it all boils down to basically people saying it reads like a bunch of short stories tied together
2: with Mm.
1: no real attempt to actually, um, actually appraise it as a work of art as anything other than like, well, this is an author. An author is a person who writes books. This is her first novel. This is, (laughs) this is a first novel. (laughs) Like that's, it feels like that constantly. When I read people's uh, people discussing the book, and then the other book that I, I'm curious whether you've read it, mm-hmm. uh, mostly because I'm curious to hear your opinion on it if you have. Is mm-hmm. um, virtuoso by Elena Moscovich. Um, I have not. So it's a. It is, um, it is a sapphic romance that is okay. incredibly poetic and a lot of people think it's very shitty. Really? I wouldn't say I love it, but it was one of the more um, impressive books I read a couple of years ago.
0: This and looks really interesting.
1: There's like, the, there are some very exploitative scenes of uh, assault and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and I... You know can't really begrudge anyone for thinking that they missed the mark because they're it's talking about things that I don't have any experience with Um, But everything else I thought was really beautiful. I thought the the imagery and symbolism was very deft Uh, I thought that the the actual characters were believable. Um, I thought that the use of um, Mirroring characters and collapsing the mirrors back in on themselves was very interesting but there's a lot it's it it is all people basically saying you didn't have to write it like this and not about like the, <laughs> the sexual assault content about you know oh you describe winds like sheets falling from the sky what's up with you why are
0: you so purple
1: exactly yeah, yeah. you know i having read a lot of um uh, Mar- Marguerite, like brain. Come on, Miss Macintosh, my darling.
2: Mm-hmm. You know,
1: I want, I want fever dreams. That's what I want out of a book. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Give me those fever dreams. Give me those crazy symbolic things. And those two books, outside of the ones that you've talked about, are the only ones that I've succeeded in finding that that really have that kind of desire to synthesize the the structure with the content and they get these horribly shallow reviews from people who weren't looking for a book like that
0: right yeah well i i think some of that has to do with just you know the aspect of visibility i you know i i uh my relationship with my ex-fiance was great um I'll never really know what happened that led to it falling apart the way that it did. Um, Writing and, and reading was a big part of our, of our relationship. And we would edit each other's work all the time. And we read a lot of the same things for the same reasons. And like a, a lot of the, the sort of whatever term you want to apply to like the group of, of women who are writing books, kind of like what you're talking about. And what I've talked about in the past, some of my, my knowledge of that came out of, of that relationship with her. And the one thing that I could never, speaking of synthesis, synthesize between her taste in books and, this, and all of this talking that we did about authors like Julia Armfield and Otessa Moschweg and, and, you know, um, Eliza Clark and all of this stuff was that she had this rule that if a book was rated as a four-star or higher as an average rating on Goodreads, that it was probably really, really good. And if it was below four stars, then it probably wasn't worth your time. And like the longer or the further down that that continuum of of, of star rating that it got, then it, it was probably proportionate to, you know, what what is worth your time. Now there is a certain degree to which that calculus does work out. Once you get to a yeah. book that's rated like, you know, 2.5 stars or whatever Probably not worth your time. But looking at, you know, these these two books that you have just brought up, the Rabbit Hutch has an average review of three point five three stars. And the uh here's another aspect of Goodreads sucking. It doesn't save my search history. What was the name of the other one?
1: Uh the uh just virtuoso. That's right.
3: Uh, Virtuoso has
0: a 3.6 flat, um, but that is based off of only 513 ratings and 86 people reviewing it. So when you when you look at something like that, and especially with the criticism you're talking about, like you end up with with re- you know reviews that are not necessarily re- reflective of what the book is, especially if it's a book that hasn't been canonized. You know, if you go to A Gravity's Rainbow, of course that's going to be over four stars, but that's also a canonized book. Um, and it, it's, it, it has to do with, with that same medium of popularity and, and like, the consumeristic culture of it. Um, it's funny that you mentioned The Rabbit Hutch in particular because there's a bookstore in Milwaukee called Boswell's that's kind of like if Wisconsin has, like, a, has like a strand right then it's boswell's Uh it's like one of the oldest bookstores in the state and if a if an author is visiting the state they're probably visiting at boswell's so they get a lot of they get a lot of really you know fairly high profile authors i saw nathan hill there most recently um for his his tour for wellness and when i went to boswell's to see um Andrew Sean Greer for the publication of his sequel to Less. They were talking about their upcoming events on their calendar. And they brought up this book called The Rabbit Hutch by Tess Gunty. And the person who was doing the the reading out of the calendar was one of the, the women who works at Boswell's, who's a bookseller there. And she was talking about how it's like her it was her favorite novel of the year so far. And that it was like a favorite amongst booksellers. And so I almost went to Tess Gunty's talk just off of the mention of her um, by this bookseller. And then just ended up forgetting about it. And so I didn't make time on my calendar for it. But it's always been a book that like when I see it in stores, I look at it and I go, yeah, you're that one that all the booksellers really liked that I almost went and saw. So I... I with you mentioning that, I will definitely actually make an effort to, to go and find myself a copy. Um, I'm going to be at a bookstore on Wednesday on a date uh, with somebody, so I'll see if they have those two books there. But it, it is interesting that it's almost sort of like the same thing as like a record store, in that the employees of a bookstore tend to know <laughs> what the actual like really interesting, ambitious stuff is. And I think it just comes from, you know, exposure and just enough time spent reading eventually leads you to stuff that is more interesting. Like you can't in the same way that you can't live off of Snickers bars, you can't just keep reading Colleen Hoover books for the for the entirety of your life at a certain point. That's just going to start to, like, kill you in some sort of a meaningful way. Um, And I so I wonder with the popularity of Colleen Hoover and Talk and, and all of the stuff that's currently popular on that, if the same creators on that app end up being, you know, the significant personalities for, we'll say that TikTok doesn't get banned and say that over the next decade they remain as popular and they, they, they grow older in the same way that, like, the first generation, like, YouTubers did, is, is their taste going to push towards something more interesting as time goes on? Because they're probably reading about as much as a bookseller does, and so at the end of the day, is there, are they going to get more towards, you know, the stuff that you and I would like to see, and does that then lead to more people uh, who are just out on the street wanting to read that stuff? You know time, time will only tell. Uh, social media is weird in that regard.
1: Yeah, and I mean, the, the truth of the matter is that like. It's easy for us to say, you know, you read Colleen Hoover uh, back to back to back. Eventually, you're going to blow your brains out. Um, But like (laughs) we're we don't read in the same way most people read. And that's not to say Mm -hmm. that we read in a better way. But, you know, we are reading because we do value those not levels of analytic value, but that is the level on which we read. Yeah. And if you do read novels in the same way that most people watch TV or movies, it doesn't matter. And I can't really fault anyone for that because mm-hmm. it doesn't matter.
3: Yeah, absolutely.
1: Um, but like, there is a, like, I, I do truly get the sense that most people do have that sort of progression that you described.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: and, it's very hard for me to, to estimate because like one of the first book series I ever read was the Animorphs.
0: Sure. Yeah.
1: D- did you ever read those or are you aware of them?
0: I, I know what they are. Um, I, I was not allowed to read them because my mom thought that they looked demonic based on the cover art. Mike, that's so okay. That's
1: crazy. <laughs> um, Do you want to know why she, 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 she maybe, I don't know how old you were. Why she she shouldn't have let you read them is because Uh, they are, like, deeply accurate depictions of the horrors of war and, like, the decisions to commit genocide or not in order to save yourself. Weird. Okay. They are, like, some of the most disturbing books ever written, and they were targeted at elementary schoolers. Hmm. And they are really good, actually, in, in mm-hmm. hindsight. And I they form a lot of, like, who I am. Who I am as a person is formed based on reading those books. So mm-hmm. it's very hard for me to say, okay, does the average person who read, like, Harry Potter and, you know, The Wind in the Willows, you know, because this average person is 80 years old, apparently. <laughs> um, little women, mm-hmm. you know, uh, like, actual books that are, like, you know quote-unquote age-appropriate books that are not trying to be thematically driven if i hadn't read those books that those incredible books which were written to to teach children not to c- commit war crimes yeah like would would i still have an interest in like would would i have read slaughterhouse five in middle school who knows like all of those things, and it's—is uh, it a progression, or is it just that certain people really love tearing things apart, and certain people really love tearing books apart?
0: Yeah, that's a good question, and I, I think it, it's actually interesting as you've as you've explained that dichotomy. Um, it it, it comes to mind like two different employees of mine, right? So the cafe that I manage is right next to a university. So most of my employees are college kids. Yeah. And um I have one employee who recently like as of maybe the last couple months of last year have start has started like reading a lot and she's like devouring like book after book after book after book and is reading a lot more of the um like I guess what what I'll say is like book of the month club picks. If you know what kind of book that might be, sure. Yeah. Um. Based on that online web service, you mean as they um, dying? Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> um. And and with some veers off to like still mainstream, but a little bit easier digestible stuff. Like like she read like Normal People by Sally Rooney, uh-huh. and and that's a book that kind of I think conforms to the reader like you can take normal people as far as you want to go with it as far as like you know the psychology of the two main characters and, and some of the thematic aspects of what Sally Rooney is doing that it's a real shame that she really has not written anything like that since in my opinion but um, you know so so that's that's one of them and then I have another employee who is a university student and she has been like just reading romance books like she's a speed reader. So she reads super fast and has just been like devouring like romance book after romance book, after romance book in the, the same vein of sort of what is becoming very popular now where it's like, it's like almost smut, but it's like acceptable smut. And there's still, you know, like a storyline there. Um, And it sort of became like, like a, almost like a like a folk tale amongst my employees that i don't own a television which is true okay, um, sure. and so she came up to me one day and she was like kate is it true that you don't own a television and i was like yeah that's true i i if i did i would just watch it all the time and there was other things that i wanted to do instead mainly reading and writing and she's like so you just go home and like read books and i was like or listen to like vinyl records yeah she was like, OK. And then what proceeded was like an incredibly like stimulating, productive conversation over the next like half hour where she mentioned that she like was was getting back into reading as like a whole sort of concept and has been enjoying these romance books that she's been reading for the past few months. But that she she wants to she wants to step into something more serious. And she was like, and, I, and you know, I, I'm sure that I can't handle like whatever weird philosophical stuff you're reading. But like I, I would be super interested to read something a bit more serious. And so it became this conversation about like truly searching for something above that, for lack of a better term, like surface level um, literature that she'd been engaging in. So like I recommended Donna Tart to her. I think Donna Tart is like one of the perfect like transitional authors to recommend to somebody from a standpoint of of we're we're stepping into, you know, higher level themes. And and some real like characters as as functionaries to the plot, sort of authors while still remaining highly readable. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I don't love the way the secret history was co opted into a, a a fashion aesthetic, um, <laughs> but it it is it is very indicative of like one mindset versus the other because that was where she was coming from. Um, the other one of my employees just keeps asking me how's Little Women. Because in her words, I don't even understand whatever it is that you might be reading. I can't really understand the kind of books that you like. I was like that's you know fair enough to each to to, to each their own, right? Yeah. Um, but the the interesting dichotomy there is that is that one reads faster than the other, and so is that is that symptomatic of an accelerated pace? Like you know, if she's already at that point because she's gone through you know, 15 books in the last three months or whatever, is, is my other employee going to eventually get there just on a longer timescale? Or is it just, or is it a matter of solely of personality or, or interest? It's hard to say.
1: Yeah, I mean, so like I, I haven't, I, I, I consider her an aunt. She's like a, a third cousin or something. Um, she has read, not super racy, but like pulp romance stuff her entire life. And the what I presume is that she just grew up with that as entertainment. She didn't, you know, have TV growing up or something. And, you know, she gets all the, like, the actual, you know, intellectual challenge she needs out of, for her, you know, studying the Bible and stuff. Mm-hmm. And I think for a lot of people, that's the case, is that they they have, like, they have the... The analytic part of their brain, regardless of any kind of discussion of, like, differing levels of analysis or differing types of analysis or differing attitudes of analysis on a person by person basis, you know, most people have, like, a thing that they care about that fulfills them in that way. Or they fulfill themselves in that way by thinking about their social lives. Mm Mm-hmm. And it's not to say that, so then the only people who read, you know, capital L literature are loners or ne'er-do-wells.
0: Sure. But then I, I think that <laughs> Menaces is, to society.
1: Well, for certainly that. <laughs> but, um, you know, it seems like it's one of those things where, like, if you grew up in a household that... You know, you saw your parents reading big books. You don't you never had that like stigma that a lot of people have like, oh, they're carrying around infinite just to show off that they can read a long book. Mm -hmm. Like, I remember when I was young, my mother read um, Pillars of the Earth. And she finished it and she said, well, that was a waste of my time. (laughs) And that was kind of my introduction to the idea of long novels, which is Mm that like, it can be something that you enjoy and then you're done with it, or it can be something that changes your life. And I, you know, and I I wonder how much of this boils down to people not believing in themselves and how much of it boils down to genuinely having no interest and no predilection towards this type of analytic reading.
0: Yeah. I, I, and that's, and that's such a good point. Cause I actually had a similar experience with my mother. Um, my mom worked for most of my life. Like I was a latchkey kid, so I would be home alone until both my parents got home from work at like 6 PM. Um, but when she suddenly wasn't working anymore, um, she decided, well, at first she decided to pick up watching law and Order SVU. Um, and, and then eventually Criminal Minds for the briefest of times before she had, like, a panic attack that she was becoming a bad person by watching Criminal Minds, and... <laughs> okay, all right.
1: <laughs> I've heard way too many people who have that fear.
2: My it's God, it's, a, it's, crazy. it's a
0: weird, like, social psychosis related yeah. to that show in particular. It really is. And so she started to read again, um after a brief detour to watching Spongebob. Um, and I remember... Chicken soup for the soul. <laughs> yeah, and and I remember, like, for the longest time, um, my mother was a a huge fan of Pride and Prejudice. Like, she loves the Colin Farrell um, movie, or miniseries that the BBC did. And she eventually found like this nice like illustrated copy of of pride and prejudice and she got through it and it took her a really long time to read it and she had basically the same uh, thought process that your your aunt did in relation to pillars of the earth
1: no so okay here's the thing so that that, that was my mother who read pillars of the earth
0: oh your and mother okay
1: my, my mother is also the person whose favorite author is like a tie between Toni Morrison and Barbara Kingsolver.
0: Oh, interesting. So it,
1: it was just that book in particular she didn't like.
0: That's Your mother contains multitudes.
1: Um, well, yeah. But in any case, um, no. But, yeah. Please continue to just just clarify. So
0: yeah, no, no, I appreciate it. So like, I, I try to like talk through her thoughts on it, and it seemed like what her difficulty was was the language, right? It seemed like where she was coming mm-hmm. from. So she read Little Women, and she found that more digestible, which makes perfect sense. That that's probably yeah. the most easily digestible book written in the eighteen hundreds, um, in the English language that I've come across. And it's no Pilgrim's Progress. No, it is not. Um, Actually, <laughs> that was like seventeen hundreds, wasn't it? <laughs> I think so, like seventeen nineties. Um, and so I I recommended uh, the Goldfinch by Donna Tart to my mom, and I I said like. Um, this is a case where like, it's, it's a longer book. Uh, I think the goldfinch is like six to 700 pages somewhere, somewhere in there. And, um, I, I remember when my mom finally finished reading that book, cause she would give me the occasional like update on where she was at and how she was feeling about it, that she was, she was just completely not outraged, but like, Upset at the ending from a strictly plot driven perspective. Right. And when I tried okay. to, did you read The Goldfinch? No. Okay. Um, yeah. So when I tried to engage in conversation with her about it, where I was like, okay, sure, I can understand why maybe narratively you find this ending, you know, dissatisf- dissatisfying, but like, when it comes to what the book is about from a standpoint of following this person who feels like so real, like such a, a real person who has gone through like all of these different, these different tra- like tragedies and traumas in his life, and how at the end of the novel he simply has to figure out what all this was for right and and he like the last 20 or so pages of this book is kind of like like a like a treatise on this guy's life and how he's finally reached a point where he he feels ready to divorce his future from his past and just sort of allow himself to to build himself up into someone that doesn't have to be constantly held by this one traumatic event of his past, right? All of this, this narrative and and thematic work that she's been doing over the the book. Uh My mom just sort of like blinked at me and was like, I just didn't like how it ended. And I was like, okay. All right. So I, I do think you're correct in that there, there seems to be this particular switch that some people do have in their brain where they're just, they're, they're just reading for, you know, um, narrative enjoyment, uh, and others who are, who are reading for the purpose of like, what is this about? Like, like, what can I, what can I understand from this? How can this potentially, you know, change me in some way?
1: Yeah. So the reason I laughed at the goldfinch because I, I have not read it I've mm-hmm. read any Donna Tartt. And, and the reason for that is because my mother read the goldfinch and hated it. So much. (laughs) And I do suspect it's probably similar motivations. Yeah. Um, But at the same time, like, so... The reason that I really champion the crying of Lot 49 Mm -hmm. is not just because it's the short, easy way to get acquainted with Thomas Pynchon's writing. It's because I do think that it's... The the actual form of the novel, of the plot, and the, the reading process of the novel is one of learning how to read novels in that way. And, um, so I read the crying of lot 49 back in 2021 or 20. Oh, it was 2021. So I was sorry. I was 23 when I read gravity's rainbow for the first time. Mm-hmm. Anywho, um, she, my, my mother, agreed to read it with me. Um, and I thought, hey, you know, I didn't love V, but I just read the recognitions right before it. Maybe it's just that. And I really liked Mason and Dixon. Um, maybe maybe this will be a way to convince someone else to read Mason and Dixon, so I'll have it, someone to talk about it with. And um, she got to the end of The Crying of Lot 49, and she was pissed as hell. For really? all of the reasons that you've just outlined with the goldfinch with your mother. Mm-hmm. And I tried to explain, you know, the reasons why I find it satisfying. And she just kind of was like, yeah, but I don't care. I just want to understand the mystery. Yeah. And now, for some reason, I'm not really sure why, but my, my mother de- decided when I said that I was going, that, that, that I, that we were going to do Vineland um, I had mentioned it as the only other book of his that I would say she might enjoy. And she was like, I will read it along with, with the show then. And as we've gone on, she has time and time again come up to me and said, like, I w- didn't understand what I was trying, how I was trying to read The Crying of Law 49. And now I want to go back to the book. And come back to it. So I, I, it's really, it's,
0: it's all of these things and more. Yeah, I, I actually agree with you about *Crying of Lot 49* in that regard. Because I'm, so I'm actually probably younger than you think I am. Um, but so, okay. Do you, do you, want me to guess your age? Sure. I, I would wager you're around 32. You, you are, you are high. Um, high. Okay. You are high, but. Okay. My my first interaction with with on was as a result of um, the Inherent Vice movie, and like I I came to on because I was so interested in PTA as a filmmaker, and when I saw that that movie was based on a book, I was like, well, I'm very impatient for this movie to come out because it looks so fascinating. I'll just go buy the book and I'll read the book, and I read the book, and I didn't. Fucking understand like yeah. like any, like really much of it i I definitely got a good chunk of it from a standpoint of like the the overall like plot aspects, but um when it came to the actual like real thematic work that that Pinchon was doing i I didn't get it and so then I read bleeding edge right after that, and I understood that one even less um, and so but i was I was so fascinated by him as an author and the fact that like I could seriously tell that something else was going on um, and that there there was something else here that I was missing but that was evidently there that I just needed to keep you know I just needed to keep working towards it and so then I you know after joining like the pinchon subreddit and like reading around and like doing more research came to crying of law 49 and that was the first one where it actually clicked for me. Um, and did, did kind of, so to speak, give me the keys to, to reading on that deeper level. And then after that, I went back to, to, uh, inherent vice and fell in love with that novel. And then, um, at the time thought that I hated bleeding edge. Um, so, I did not go back to it immediately. That one took longer for me to come around on, but then read, like, you know, most of the rest of his books and, and sort of continued to utilize that concept of, like, what did, what did I learn through reading Crying of Law 49? What did I, what did I figure out about reading as an exercise um, that, you know, would come in handy here? So, I, I agree with you. I think that it, it can be the best place to. To break through, not just to understanding Pinchon, but you know, postmodern writers and and, and
3: authors of bigger books, so to speak, as a whole.
1: Yeah, I mean, and in particular, that book has has a, it and Gravity's Rainbow have that incredible ability to inspire paranoia. Yeah, and that that in particular, I think is a. The way that he literally in the text connects the psychological, you know, terror of paranoia with the experience of reading through things, I I think is a. A I think it's very important to understanding the attitude of most you know postmodern novels, post sixties mm-hmm. postmodern novels at least, but also just like it it really is something that, I think most people just don't you know you go through life trying to not make pointless connections because mm-hmm. everyone's brain always does it not necessarily all the time but everyone has you know false positives in their mm-hmm. cognitive process at some point point. and to have a book that tears down that facade of what you should and what you shouldn't be connecting i think i think it might be necessary for a lot of people to be able to enjoy um, these kinds of challenging novels.
0: Yeah, no, I agree. And, and I don't, you know, I don't know if I necessarily buy into the idea of, of Pinchon as like a radical activist who is including, you know, classified information or whatever into his novels as a way of like information dissemination or whatever, but I, I think that a book like Crying of Lot 49 that as you're talking about from a standpoint of of information classification and, and like what goes with what and what doesn't it, it, not that i imagine you know uh, alt writers and like trump people would would read crying of lot 49 on that level but if you could get them to i would genuinely be very curious what if any real world consequences that would carry over to their to their mm-hmm. worldview um you know, that, that is an exercise in futility because they, they would not give themselves over to that process. But if they managed to, I would be genuinely interested to see what that result would be. Um, you know, because people who read a lot of Pinchon, you know, we're, we all kind of end up being a little paranoid and we all kind of end up being, uh, you know, like Laplace's demon in that, you know, sorting out fact from fiction or what goes with what and what doesn't. In, in a lot of that stuff, especially from a historical context where there's there's additional information as time has gone on. Um, so it has, you know, his writing or, or anyone else's, I would say, postmodernism, you know, to a more significant degree, does have the the very real possibility to, to make a change, not in just how we read, but in how we do a lot of things.
3: I am skeptical of that intuition. Yeah? I mean, I... I... I feel like
1: the, okay. So uh, first of all, I don't just just to be clear. I play again. I play into it for the sake of the podcast for uh-huh. identification, basically. I'm I'm very tired of people <laughs> mixing up Luke and I, and so I've decided to just go full. Is that a thing on. that happens? Y- you and Cody do it. Um, <laughs> uh, most reviews that have like cited one of us have been like it was either Luke or Will. Um and it's not actually something that bo- bothers me but it was sure, something yeah. that I was just like oh this probably would be good for re- listeners to be able to like actually put a stamp on one of us. Mm-hmm. Um but I I I so I don't really think that he you know is some like truth teller who's transmitting secret messages.
0: No, I I
1: think that that's taking it a bit far. <laughs> but what I do think is that the purpose of gravity's rainbow, if there is any purpose to it, it is to outline the fact that, that, is, that, that the idea that through honing your, your higher sensibilities, to borrow that Victorian framing, mm-hmm. the, the idea that we can have a generically good education that doesn't lead to, you know, holocausts, yeah. Um, that that are rooted in rationalism as an end goal. I, I, I think that a lot of that book is about how we can't rely on reason to to direct us towards not horrible things. And I do think that if you got a lot of alt writers to read The Crying of Law 49 and or Gravity's Rainbow, you'd get a lot of like actual Nazis. i think a lot of those people would come out of it and not to say necessarily that they are like they are incubating nazis and this would bring them to their full potential yeah but i think that nazism requires that kind of
4: um like have you dug into nazi symbology
1: outside of gravity's rainbow
3: yeah,
0: yeah. I mean, yeah. as a Jewish person, oh, yeah. Um, okay, I yeah. forgot
1: about that aspect. Yeah, that's. <laughs> but you know, that all of that to me is evidence of people who had their their senses of reasoning, who had their ability to pick up and drop connections on a dime. Mm-hmm. I think that all of that is evidence that it's not a neutral good, and that's not to say that I think that therefore we need to keep. We need to keep Pinchon's book secret, <laughs> or in general, like that. We need to, you know, not teach people, but that it does have the uh, the th- these things are more convoluted than that. I guess in the most simple way that I can phrase it.
0: Yeah, no, that's that's an excellent point. It does it it can be shaped. By the intentions of whoever is reading them, certainly. Well, I think I think we're about like ten minutes away from reaching the max recording time on Craig. Very good,
1: very good.
2: <laughs>
1: I, I think we've had a, we've given Cody enough th- fodder. Yeah, I'm sure he'll appreciate this long drawn out, pretty specific conversation.
0: Yeah, it could, could just be a bonus episode, probably.
1: <laughs> I mean, seriously, we have been talking for two hours
0: yeah very true three it's good though I, I don't think you and i have really ever had like a, a conversation like this before
1: no yeah no i i i, I do tend towards privacy mm-hmm. and uh yeah i'm glad to have have a nice long chat that wasn't necessarily part of the show
4: yeah this was fun